Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me, as always, the creator of the show, my co-host, Tom Joe. Hello, Christopher. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know why. I almost wanted a bit of a <clears throat> Johnny Carson with you there. <laughs> uh, if that's okay with you, Tom. Mm. You are correct, sir. <laughs> that's the best I can do. Let's talk about the lineup that we have today on Famous Lost Words. You and I, I think, are different in our opinions of Bob Seger. I hold him in pretty high regard, and I think perhaps you hold him in medium regard. Would that be correct? You know, that's not inaccurate, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I like some of the songs very much, mm-hmm. but a whole lot of Bob Seger at once wouldn't be on my uh, menu. Right, and as a DJ, I just need to tell you that if I have to hear old-time rock and roll one more time... I'm yeah. going to hurt myself and then anybody who requests the song. Ooh, yeah. I, I wouldn't. Okay. And we also have um, some interesting words from the creator of uh, one of Bob Seger's biggest hits. Right. Now, you've told me about this. I haven't heard this yet, but I'm fascinated by it because I know this guy's name a little bit. And, and we're going to hear him talk about the song and he's going to play a little bit of it, just like Holly Knight did with Better Be Good To Me uh, when we were talking about that song. So we've got a similar kind of audio clip, and, uh, and I can't wait to hear it. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. Also, we've got a great chat with April Wine from 1977, and it's just after a concert that made them extremely famous, the one where they were a, like a front for a Rolling Stones concert. And it's a great story. We'll tell you all of that in just a few minutes. And we're going to have a special... Sorry. Something special, I'm just going to tell yes. you. For something brand new we've never done before, because we all love music. Mm-hmm. We all love books about music, and we all love films about music. So if you think about your favorite music documentary, what would it be? Oh. We are going to discuss that today. Right. And we have a special guest, someone that you and I know, who is just a walking encyclopedia for geekdom. He really and, is. And um, I love that. We should just rename the show Three Geeks in a Room. Yeah. Well, water finds its own level, right? <laughs> Anyway, so we'll be doing that in our final segment today. Okay, so let's get started with Bob Seger. Tom, Bob Seger built his career the old-fashioned way. One fan at a time, one club at a time, growing his fan base locally in Detroit before finally breaking nationally after a lot of years and a lot of slogging through the music business. He went through a number of musical incarnations fronting bands, performing solo, backing other people, until he settled on the Silver Bullet Band Great in 1974. Great name for a band. Mm-hmm. His childhood no doubt prepared him for that slog and the fight that he went through to become a musician. Now, here he talks about growing up in very tough circumstances. In my senior year in high school, my brother went into service, and uh, my father died, and that left me and my mother, you know, I had to support my mother. So I was going to high school, I was working in a clothing store, I was delivering pizzas at night, five nights a week, and I was playing two nights a week. So it was pretty, uh, it was pretty burly. But you know, when you're young, you're you're more resilient, and I never really looked at it as as if you know, oh, poor me. You know, about the about the worst thing was we we ended up living in one room, and we had a hot plate, and we didn't have a refrigerator or anything. I mean, we were really poor, <laughs> and. Uh, that was about the low point, I guess. You know, and that was when I was 17 as a senior in high school. Of course, I didn't have any car and I didn't have any clothes or anything like that to speak of, really. So I guess I was under a lot of stress, but 
At the same time, I really don't remember it being that bad, you know, because there were a lot of things opening up. Wow, that's very interesting. Now, I do mm. want to comment on the fact that the, many of these clips are going to have music behind them because they're actually part of a documentary that we put together, a, a radio special that we put together, and so the music remains. So this second clip, you and I talked about this second clip, where he talks about how popular he is. So let's hear that <laughs> about him being huge in Detroit. You know, we're really, really big in Detroit, and it's like... I imagine it is for Paul McCartney in London. It really is. I'm not I'm not putting you on. We got the number one and the number three all-time best-selling albums in that city. And the number two one is Abbey Road. I'm so big I can't stand it. I know. <laughs> it is really interesting because you think that he sounds quite bragging, like a, like a braggart there. I, I do. And he does. And it's a little bit surprising to me because I'm a bit surprised that his uber-confidence in his own popularity and all that... But, you know, he's telling it like it is. Well, I guess if you can back it up, right? Yes, for sure. He's actually pretty open about a lot of things in this interview, which is what I like about him. There's, there's a sort of a candor that comes very easily with him that, that makes him quite charming. So, like all songwriters who are trying to figure it out and trying to find a path that works for them, he basically followed the form of the songs that he heard on the radio until all of that changed with the advent of FM radio. When I started out in 65, I used to write two-and-a-half-minute songs because that was the only avenue. There was no FM in 65. And from 65 to 68, I had 10 top 10 singles in the city of Detroit. I would write formula-type songs, you know, but they were rock and roll songs. They weren't, you know, Moon, June, Spoon or anything like that, but they were based on a formula, a certain beat, a certain tempo, you know, like a danceable tempo. Back then, that's, what I, that's all I wrote. Since 1970, and since the advent of FM, um... I was no longer limited to writing singles as such. If the problem with having to hit singles, you've got to live with it afterwards. So here, Bob Seger talks about the guitar players that influenced him and how not following them freed him up creatively. I wanted to be a guitar player. It's like anybody who ever saw Clapton and Hendrix back in those days. You know, I got hung up in that. And for the last three years, which is how long I've been with the Silver Bullet Band, I've been just a front singer. And it's sort of been like the whole thing just kind of started over right there. We were always big in Michigan, but for the last three years, like the national things has been growing as if we were a, a new act that started three years ago. And this band has, it, like I said, it's really only like a three-year-old band. And the whole thing is sort of a new career from three years ago for me, like the career of being a front singer, which I still feel really awkward about at times, but. I'm still working at it, and um, got a lot more time to write songs because I haven't got to worry about playing guitar. Right, so he... Pretty cool, huh? Well, it is cool, but he's kind of, you know, he was a guitarist, right? And all of a sudden, he's not a guitarist anymore. He's just a lead singer, and he finds it freeing that he doesn't have to worry about that anymore, that he can just, you know, concentrate on being a lead singer and a dynamic frontman for a band, right? Those early Bob Seger albums and tours, particularly tours, really made him huge in Detroit, as he said a, f a few <laughs> minutes ago. But I found that interesting because I didn't really know he was a guitarist. Well, I took it to mean that it freed him up in the sense of he wasn't having to worry about his playing or writing parts for songs, all those things that guitar players do, and more that he had time to write. Yes. I, but it I, also frees him up on stage, presumably. Yes, for sure. The song that was maybe... The singular breakout for him was a song called Night Moves. 
And it was a deep song, a very well thought out song. One that apparently was inspired by Bruce Springsteen's Jungle Land and Me and Bobby McGee by Chris Christopherson. And and in the narrative detail, you can kind of hear that. It's Bob Seger's favorite song that he's ever written. And he recorded it in Toronto with legendary Canadian producer Jack Richardson Mm -hmm. and a guy named Doug Riley, who is a studio genius from from the past on piano as well. And it was inspired by a real-life girlfriend. I got a song about the first main love of my life. It's called Night Moves. Uh, It was really a heavy thing. I liked her, and and this other guy liked her. She ended up marrying him after keeping us both on the hook for about five years, right? So uh, she was a mean one, a real mean one. And it took me five years to realize it, because I was really sheltered and I was idealistic. She was a pretty wild lady. Oh, man, that is such a great song. Honestly, that has to be one of the songs of the decade. It, there's so much in it. There's so much longing. Now, of course, what he says there about her and how this was not a nice person, which is interesting because it kind of paints the song in a different way. In the song, he's in this kind of reverie state looking back on this beautiful time. But boy, in reality, he really didn't like this woman who inspired the song. (laughs) Well, the soft focus that a little bit of nostalgia provides. Interestingly, I know some women friends of mine who do not like this song. They consider the lyrics sexist. Well, I can see that because he really is describing her physically. Mm -hmm. Um, You know... In an objectifying way. I I suppose so. Seen from the modern lens. Sure. What I think he was trying to say, because he's kind of cutting himself up there in that different part of the song. What I'm gathering from that, or what I'm hoping he means, is that, look, neither of us were perfect. We weren't movie stars, we weren't anything, but this was really big news to us. Those night moves in the back of the car, or, you know, whatever went on, you know, that was really important to us. And uh, But I do get that, because there is certainly that complaint to be made about the song. But I think I look at it through a more benign way. So here he talks about what kind of a city Detroit is. Detroit tends to be a very rocky market. Uh, it's, it's simply a harder rock market, much harder than San Francisco or L.A. It's a factory city, and people work hard there. They work, you know, they do overtime's the big thing. You make a lot of money if you work overtime. You can double your check working a day and a half overtime on the lines, you know, at the, at the auto factories and so on and so forth. Uh, it takes a large part of the workforce. I think people work hard, and they want to play hard when they come up. They don't want to be low. It's just a rock and roll market. Oh, yeah. And you can see that. There's, you know, there's a real working man's attitude towards, like, a real work ethic towards his stage performance, right? Yeah. How hardworking he was. He was including everyone in that concert experience. For sure, you can see that. This next quote is, to me, really kind of odd and very amusing. He talks about trying to hang in and still be rocking at 35. <laughs> well, Bob is now in his mid-60s and looks to me like he's hanging in just fine. Yeah, this is weird. Have a listen. I've seen enough of this business to know you can go up and down so fast it's unbelievable. But at the same time, we play so much and our band is... is uh, if, we, if we ever get a, a, a compliment on our band, it's usually something that we're really tight, you know, that it's very well rehearsed. And I think we're building a stronger foundation than a lot of other bands do. You know, maybe the glitter bands or something like that or the, or the gimmick bands. Uh, I think we might just last a little longer than usual. I don't know how much longer I can I can keep doing rock and roll. I sometimes wonder about that. 
I don't want to be 35. And, uh, let's say maybe 36. Maybe till you're 35, but after that, it, it, it's kind of scary being up there in front of young kids. It's a little scary, but uh, at the moment, it's a lot of fun. Okay, Christopher. So he's worried <laughs> about hanging into the age of 35. In this interview, he's 31. So that's kind of weird that he thinks that in four years, he's going to be over the hill to be a rock star. Now, you know, in that era, I guess you can see that. There was still a little bit of that, you know, don't trust anyone over 30 kind of attitude. I want rather burn out than fade away. But so many of these artists that he's that are his uh, contemporaries or that have that have preceded him, they're still around, including him, right? And so uh, that certainly is funny in hindsight. Well, I, I also like that he talks about how he thinks their band has built a stronger foundation than the glitter band. Right, right. <laughs> so a little Burton-esque, maybe? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so here he talks about what success affords you in terms of freedom. I just started this week, as a matter of fact. Started writing the new one. And it, it just looks beautiful. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so pleased with the future because the band is, is at its peak as, as a unit. We're, we're really playing better than ever before. The records are selling like crazy. We're going to have two gold albums within a two-month period. And what it buys me is time to really take a lot of time and do the next one right. We can get, hopefully, the best producer that we can get. We can sit down and take a whole month just to record the album. Plus, I've got time to write more than ever before. You know, And, and, and the scheduling is much better now that, we, that we're successful. We worked 203 nights last last year and a lot of those nights were like you know nine and ten in a row and you just get so burnt all you wanted to do was do all the things that you couldn't take in your suitcase if you know what i mean you know drive your car spend time with your lady um uh take a walk anything you know so now i think uh i'm very confident about the future i'm i'm really looking forward to to doing it right for the first time in my career, and we can just take a lot of time to do an album really, really well. Oh, sure. And you can see that. You know, a lot of artists complain about what little time they have, how success all of a sudden means that you have to bang out more product in a hurry. Um, but once you kind of stop that maddening merry-go-round and take a few moments to spend some time, you know, writing the songs properly instead of hurrying them and spending time in the studio instead of hurrying that, it makes you feel like you're appreciated more. A lot of artists didn't have that luxury, though, of being able to take some time to do that. Mm-hmm. So let's just talk a little bit about the Silver Bullet Band from around this era. In 1974 alone, they played 261 gigs. Wow. Can you imagine that? That is so grueling for any group of people. That's assembly line style. And he said that they split the money six ways at the time. And the wording he used in the clip, which we didn't hear in this last bit, was that he wanted all the musicians, all the members of the band, to see a light at the end of the tunnel so that they're, so that you know the harder they worked, the more money they made, and the money was going to be split six ways. Now, he's the songwriter, so he'll certainly be making a lot more money in the long run. And Bob Seger says he wasn't prepared for the success of his first hit, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. Right? Great song. Let's hear a little bit of that. Oh, 
Great song, Rambling Gambling Man, Bob Seger from the late 60s. He says that the success of that song went to his head, and he went through this huge rock star ego trip. And you can hear it from that second clip that we played a little bit earlier when he talks about bit, how big he was. Bit, yeah. But it was lean times after that very humbling experience. Christopher, he actually had to quit music, and he did for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Bob, that must have been pretty grueling itself. Yeah, I went to the Bahamas. And, you know. and then he came back, and I, I think it taught him a, a few things or two about humility. You know, I've heard an interview with him in the last six months, him talking about trying to get back on the road with his health problems, and he is going to be getting back on the road. And the other thing he was talking about is his friendship with Glenn Fry mm. and how close they were and how often they worked together. Glenn Fry sang on Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. He sang back up on right. that song, and they were incredibly close, and it was a real loss for him. Didn't and they co-write um, Heartache Tonight, the Eagles song? Yeah, uh, I think maybe they did, and I do know that they sang on a couple songs uh, from the Against the Wind album. Ah. Yeah. Okay, so there you go. Bob Seger from 1977, some great stuff from him. We've got a lot of audio from Bob, so in the next few months we'll get back to another feature with Bob. So before we leave Bob Seger, you've got some great audio of someone who contributed greatly to one of Bob Seger's songs. Mm-hmm. You know, little tangent here. There's a point to be made that sometimes we know too much and want to know too much about the music and the artists we love. I don't know if you buy that or not, but certainly guilty is charged over on this side of the room. <laughs> um, but the intrigue, it's, it's kind of too much to resist. We want to know. We want to dig deeper. We want to keep scratching at the surface of stories. Now, this may be one of those cases simply because of how dark the source is for this beautiful song. Rodney Crowell is a name well-known and highly respected in country music circles. Um, Not so much in the rock world, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that one of his best-known songs became a hit for Seeger in 1982 on the album The Distance. Right. Crowell has a couple of um, country music Song of the Year Grammy Awards. I don't remember, he was married to uh, Roseanne Roseanne Cash Cash for many years, and they worked together, did a lot of records together. Mm -hmm. He's got a catalog full of hits for Crystal Gale, Leon Womack, Alan Jackson, Tim McGraw. It just keeps on going. Mm -hmm. He's an amazing songwriter. In this clip, he tells the unusual story of where the song Shame on the Moon came from. Well, Shame on the Moon, uh, I was sitting there just, I mean, that's, it's so simple. It's that I was actually sitting watching the news reports on the Jamestown thing, that Jimmy Jones deal that went down in the French Guiana, and I was sitting there watching the news just strumming the guitar. Did the lyric grow out of what well, you were watching the, the at all? The lyric started coming. The idea that some men go crazy—is yeah, that where that st- right. stemmed from? Yeah. Well, I had the you know like it's like everybody was talking about uh, Jimmy Jones about these people were so under his spell, you know that they trusted him, you know, and but he killed them, you know. And I mean, it's a weird angle to get an idea for a song, but I'm sitting there going, yeah. "Two, two things inside of me." Don't know if he 
You know, he sings that song with such ease, and that is a great song, but I never really loved that song before, and now I love it way oh. more, now that I l- listen to the lyrics a little bit more. Okay, so you don't know too much. I don't know too much. I know just enough for this <laughs> show, Christopher. <laughs> okay, Christopher, let's go back to 1977, a conversation with Miles Goodwin of April Wine. Now, April Wine had a series of hit singles in the 70s, and this was a good time for them for sure. And here they are in conversation with announcer Steve Herringer as Miles sets up the history of the group, which I thought was formed in Montreal, but he explains otherwise. Well, now, April Wine got together in, uh, in Halifax in 1969. It was December, actually, and we left for Montreal April 1st, 70. And in that time, I think we did p- perhaps five gigs at the most concerts just to break in uh, some of the material and just to find out what the group sounded like. Mm-hmm. And we realized we couldn't do anything down here with original original material, so we went to Montreal. What is the difference between April Wine when You Could Have Been a Lady came out, which was, to me, one of the best rock and roll tunes that came out of this country, and what is happening now in 1977 with April Wine? Well, what sort of progression? Of, that, that, that is a lot of time. and there's a, a lot, lot of space. time. A lot of things have gone, have gone by, a lot of frustration and a lot of personnel changes, changes in material and direction and ideals. It's really hard to, to, to say in a few words what has gone down since then, except to say, I guess, that the group has matured. And with April Wine, I, I always feel that it's a, it's a continuous growth, that we're always trying to, uh, to, to outdo what we've done before. Like we're recently mixing in New York, and we've decided not to mix uh, any more of our records in, in, in Canada, at least for a while. We decided that, uh, that we can uh, we can probably get a better product out of the states, and it's time to just take our our, our material and go down there and work with with the people that have been around for years and years and years. And no, as, as everyone realizes, in Canada, the musicians, the recording studios, the technicians that run the recording studios, the publishers, the record companies, the, the managers of the artists, all of these people are fairly new in Canada at the music business, you know, internationally. And so, like, we're all learning, and I, I see everybody making mistakes, but everybody at the same time making progress. And I feel that we're in that same category. I suppose general lack of experience in Canada, that doesn't really speak too well for, for what's going on here. Well, you see, you know, like, I think that we're, uh, we're mature enough to, uh, to realize that, that uh, we're not perfect and we've got a long ways to go. I'm not saying that everybody is like that, but I think the majority. And, uh, and I'm very pro-Canadian. I mean, I'd rather uh, encourage Canadians than discourage. I mean, I've always felt that way when I've heard bad reports about Juno Awards. And most people say, oh, they're terrible, they suck. And I say, well, man, it's the only thing we got. So let's make the most of it. Let's talk about a star system in Canada. Is there one or should there be one? Oh, there is one. Of course there is. Is that the Always ju- has been. I mean, it's, it's really, it's very obvious today because I feel we have a lot of stars in Canada these days. Well, I mean, apart from a Juno Award, what, is there anything else that indicates that there is a star system in the country? Yeah, when a Canadian group can sell out uh, 10,000 seats or 20,000 seats in Canada, that's a star system. Uh-huh. That's proof of it, uh-huh. I would think. I mean, we go on the road, we can gross a million dollars. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, across Canada, I'm talking about the country. Yep. And, um, I mean, the, you know, the band has to, we have to be stars in this country. 
we couldn't do it. Gordon Lightfoot and, and all, you know, you know, I don't have to name the people, Blackman Turner, Burton Cummings, uh, on and on. Mm-hmm. Mahogany Rush, as far as I'm concerned, Michelle Pagliaro, Art, and we have a star system here. We have stars. Isn't that something? He's really proudly Canadian, and when the announcer says something about Canada not having a star system, he really stands up for Canada's system of music and the fact that they can make a million dollars on tour, which is fantastic, or they can gross a million dollars on tour. Who knows how much of that they saw? He's very clear-headed about his perspective on things, and I, I really like the fact that he was absolutely honest, which is, you know what? We didn't like the sound of the mixes we were getting working at studios here, so we went to New York because yeah. that's what you got to do. Yes. But he then also st- stood up, as you say, for the Canadian star system mm-hmm. and, and sort of pushed back against the notion that it didn't exist. Yeah. But it's an interesting time period because it wasn't that many years after this interview that, as the expression goes, a rising tide lifts all boats and the effects of the Canadian content percentages began to be felt. Not only were we, you know, swimming in Canadian content on radio because of the regulations, but studios began to be built. There were opportunities. Labels started to have funds for signing more than one artist a year, and the industry developed a pace. and And what happened is that those studios where he didn't want to work in 1977 started hosting people like Elton John. Not that many years later. That's exactly right. You know what? You make an excellent point about the Canadian content regulations. And for many of our listeners who don't understand that. It was around 1970 when the government said you have to play 25% of the music that you play as Canadian content. 67, I think. 67? Oh, okay. Maybe I'm wrong, Tom. Uh, I think it was a little bit later than okay. that. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, and so radio stations were scrambling. There just weren't enough established or quality Canadian acts. And so you would hear songs, very good songs like Painted Ladies by uh, by Ian Thomas and some Gordon Lightfoot songs over and over and over again. And Patsy and Gallant. Murray, Patsy Gallant. Well, Patsy was in the mid-70s, so artists like that definitely benefited from it. Turntable hits, they were Turntable hits, that's exactly right. But like you say, it lifted the industry up and it actually did what it set out to do. It just took a long time to do it. Yes. And it was a little bit painful sometimes to hear some of those songs because some of them were excellent and some of them were less than excellent (laughs) so did you remember lighthouse oh man i love those songs those are great songs oh yeah and you know lighthouse benefited from that but so they should have and he mentioned michelle pagliaro i love michelle remember that loving you ain't so easy loving you ain't easy is one of my favorite canadian showers those were great songs absolutely absolutely okay so we've only played a couple clips here of april wine but i want to get to the good stuff right now and this is the gig that made them very famous it's their big gig at toronto's elma combo when they were the front for another band called the rolling stones (laughs) so our radio station we hold this concert it's a secret concert with the rolling stones they want to record a live album they want to do it in toronto so the radio station had readers write in about why they would like to see april wine in concert Okay, The Rolling Stones management comes to the station a few days before the concert, reads all the, hand, all the letters, and hand-selects the people. Wow. There's 300 people per night. It's two nights. The very first night, all the winners were instructed to come to the radio station, not to the venue because they don't know where the venue is. There's 10 transit buses picking up the winners to take them to the place. Only the first driver in the first bus knew what the destination was. <laughs> Not even the other nine drivers wow. knew. They just had to follow. And so they all arrive, 
and you know secret secret location april wine comes out they play people are going crazy they must have been wondering why all the secrecy and then one of our guys stands up on the stage and said ladies and gentlemen the rolling stones and everybody has a riot wow yeah and they recorded their album there yes of course Mm -hmm. they did okay so let's have a listen to how that gig came about. How did you people feel playing for a week at the Elma Combo, uh, having an idea that the Stones were going to be there, and trying to put a live album together all at the same time? That's a lot of pressure, I would think. Yeah, and it came up rather fast, I must say, because the Stones originally had another group to open for them, a group called uh, the Dingoes, I think. Uh, they're from Australia, I think. From Australia, yeah, and they're, they're managed by the same, uh, the same fellow, Peter Rudge, who manages the Stones, so they were going to use his that group and um, and apparently they couldn't make the concert for some reason they had commitments a tour commitments or something and so they wanted a uh, an established Canadian group that would add to the uh, to the bill I mean not really add to the bill sort of a smoke screen I should say now we can go into the club and we can fill it and uh, right and, you know that sort of thing I mean they couldn't they couldn't sell tickets for the Stones at the Elma Combo it would be ridiculous so they wanted an established group in there and so we were recording a live album and uh, so we sent some material to Peter Rudge and the, and the Stones listened to some of our things and uh, met with uh, some of our people and decided that they liked the group and they wanted us to, uh, to do the show with them. How about the people in the band? Are they uh, really looking forward to seeing these, these legendary people in the Elma Combo, a small little club atmosphere right up on stage where you had been? Oh, of course. <clears throat> the, the excitement was... Was, the place was just alive. I mean, people were standing on, on chairs and tables. I was one of them. <laughs> so was I. I. It's such an incredible feeling to, to, to be in the same room with the Stones. We were all in awe, you know, certainly. Uh, but we weren't nervous during our set. I mean, we sort of thought that, well, maybe some people are going to say, hey, we want the Stones while we were playing or, or give us a hard time. That didn't happen, though. Just no, not at all. Not at all. There was... They were very respectful, and uh, they helped us a great deal. And we appreciate that very much from the, from the Toronto audience. Um, and we finish our set, and everybody quietly waits, and the stones come out, and then just the whole place breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. That was excellent. That was excellent. Isn't that interesting? They weren't even the first choice for the to be in the in the concert. I've it, never heard of the band that were the Dingoes, <laughs> <laughs> like the Dingo H O Baby, the, like the, the Dingo legendary Dingoes. <laughs> That's great stuff. April Wine. You know, we have a lot of interviews left with April Wine in the archives. I'll I'll go through them, and if I find some great stuff to play, we certainly will. They had so many good songs. One of my favorite is one of their latter hits called Say Hello, which sounded so good on the radio. But Tonight is a Wonderful Time to Fall in Love. Um, Just Between You and Me. Could Have Been a Lady. Oh, my God, Could Have Been a Lady is so good. And Bad Side of the Moon. Uh, that's an Elton John song, Elton John, Bernie Taupin song. They had a hit with that. Who wrote Could Have Been a Lady? Well, you know, it's funny. I thought that they wrote it, but it's an Errol Brown uh, song, and he's the guy from Hot Chocolate. So Hot Chocolate did it originally. But let's listen to the April Wine version for a second. I have... Can we hear a little bit of the Hot Chocolate? Sure. I don't don't know their version. Some funky little groove there. <laughs> That's great stuff. There you go. April Wine. I Honestly, I know probably a dozen songs by them. So there. 11 more than me. <laughs>
Right now on Famous Lost Words, we're going to talk about the best music documentaries of all time. I'm Tom, that's Christopher, and we brought in a ringer for this conversation, Jay Michaels, who is a big fan of music documentaries. Jay? Yeah, I am very much guilty of that being my guilty pleasure, is the musical documentary. That's my go-to. That's my favorite thing to watch. I, I love to read music biographies, so they probably go hand in hand. But one of the things that I've noticed about the music biography as of late is I keep circling back to certain ones because I can't find another one that I want to watch or something else I'm watching doesn't live up to my expectations. And the documentary that I always go back to the most is the Eagles Hell Freezes Over documentary. Mm. The history of the Eagles? The history one? of the Eagles. Yeah. It's in two parts, and you can tell it's funded by the Eagles because it's epic and it's like five hours <laughs> yes. long. Yeah. In other words, who would pay for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and well, this well, is, you and I would, but yeah. Yeah, no, and this is a trend, I think, too, for a lot of bands now that look back on themselves is, you know, it's a fine line to walk, and I think the Eagles do a very good job of it. They finance their own project, which then becomes great promo for the band because you give it to Netflix. You make money for it, obviously. But the more you're on Netflix, the more records you're going to have people stream and the more concert tickets you're going to sell because you've, you've had your backstory. But what the Eagles do a great job, I think, in this documentary of doing is showing that they're fallible, showing that they're human beings, showing mm-hmm. that they have warts and all. There's one, yeah. per- there's one particular clip that I really like, Tom, when they talk to David Geffen about the second time that Don Henley signs on with him to, to be on his label. And Don Geffen and, and David Geffen just looked at the camera and says, well, Don Henley by nature is a malcontent. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, that's something that wouldn't normally be left into a documentary. And there's all kinds of those little tidbits yeah. about the band inside this documentary. Yeah. If there's a template for that kind of doc, is it Let It Be? Yeah, Let It Be is a great documentary. The warts and all category? Yeah, yeah. I hear that is heartbreaking to watch. I haven't seen it. I don't think I want to. You know what? You'll actually love it anyway. Yeah. Because it shows all the things that made the band great, as well as all the things that made them fall apart. Right. And it is heartbreaking. So if you're just tuning in, so we are talking about the best music documentaries ever with our resident expert, Jay Michaels. So if we were going to start throwing out names of what our very favorite music docs were... Are there some that we have to eliminate from the beginning? Here's my question. Are Woodstock, The Last Waltz, Monterey Pop, Stop Making Sense, Rattle and Hum, Gimme Shelter, are those documentaries or are they concert videos? See, that's I, I would argue that those are films. For the most part. And hence documentaries. Hence documentaries. And a lot of what we see now are promotional videos slash slash docs. Because it's a whole different format now because you want to get it into a tight 90 minutes for people to consume on their phones and you want them to consume it on Netflix. Whereas The Last Waltz, I want to see that at a repertory theater. I want to see that in a soft seater. I want to see that with other people that appreciate the 35 millimeter format, you know? Right, right. That okay. are music snobs like me, basically. But as far as the actual <laughs> content of those, there's, yeah. not, there's not a distinguishing feature that says, I'm a doc and I'm a concert film. To me, those are concert films. The ones that you said, oh, those, okay. are, those don't right. qualify into this category. But I'll allow it. No, I, I see what you mean, because there has to be a certain amount of, of interview. There has to be a certain amount of, of backstory. Like, like Led Zeppelin, song remains the same. Yeah. Perfect example. There's just four adventures where John Bonham's in a race car. Jimmy Page as a wizard and uh, Robert Plant is climbing a mountain or something like that. And you know, John Paul Jones just plays a weird solo on the organ. And that's, that, like, that's not a biography. That's, that's just it, adventures that go along with, with a concert film, which, so, which has its charms as well. One of my favorite oh, concert, yeah. concert movies is ACDC's Let There Be Rock. Which was right. in Paris, which was before Bon Scott died, where it was just the sure, yeah. wow. sheer raw power yeah, it was that, that ACDC had. I yeah. didn't need interviews. I just needed that gig, and it was great. Yeah. So, Tom, 
your favorite music documentary? Well, you I know, mean, music, yeah. you know, I do believe that uh, Jay is probably going to cover off uh, a lot of the ones that I like. But one I'm fairly certain you don't have is Super Duper Alice Cooper. Do you have that on your list? I do not have it on my list, but, but I have seen it. It excellent. is excellent. Yes, yeah, and it's one of those ones that almost is an anti-documentary because it's um, what they do is they tell the story, and they have none of the talking heads on it. So none of the people who are talking about Alice Cooper are on the camera unless they're animated. So all everything is kind of weirdly animated, and it makes it so much more enjoyable to watch. Yeah. But the Alice Cooper story in itself is so fascinating, so I would highly yeah. recommend that one, Super Duper Alice Cooper. And, and if you're making a night of it, yeah. make sure that your opening act is Supermensch. <laughs> Did you read my notes over my shoulder? I just wrote that down. <laughs> Chef Gordon, Supermensch. I, I just read his book last week. So who is that? He's the guy that managed Alice Shep Cooper. Gordon, mm-hmm. who managed Alice's career right from the beginning, yeah. and a lot of other illustrious stars, and also is basically responsible for the celebrity chef movement. You have to read his book or watch the doc to understand. Yeah, and the sure. doc was made by Mike Myers. Yes. So we're talking to Jay Michaels about the best music documentaries ever. Keep going. Let's get into the Oasis documentary, Supersonic, which, again, is on my, uh, it's on my list of repeats. And there's so many great things about this documentary. Number one, it's the documentary that had to be made. Because because Liam and Noel Gallagher are just one of those you know relationships that go back in time like like Ray Davies and his brother, the Kinks guys, and um, you know that tumultuous relationship within families, and one of the tricks that they do in this documentary that I really really love, and they're part of the new wave of documentaries where you have video footage of every performance you've ever had because <laughs> you you know you came you came around in a time where people had handheld cams, and they do this really great trick if you haven't seen this where there'll be narration from someone off screen that's narrating the event where you're seeing videotape, but they manipulate the faces on the screen where it looks as if they are saying the dialogue that the person who is the talking head is saying. Well, I have to like Oasis to enjoy it. Um, I love Oasis. <laughs> I think it makes a difference if, if you if you don't like them, you probably won't have the same appreciation for it. But what it does too, Chris, is it only takes us from, it's like it's a four-year span, yeah. I think, from the time they form till the time they're playing Nebworth. Yeah. So that was like, you know, half a million, half a million people, I think, okay. at, at those games. I think you'll appreciate them more, but you'll also get a bit of insight into their relationship. I think it's definitely worth a watch, even if you're not a fan. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about some of the people behind the scenes, because those have been some of the other docs that have made their way into, you know, on our devices as well as into selected theaters and on demand. And the one that I keep thinking about is The Wrecking Crew. Oh, oh yeah. Which is the I love great that story. The story of all the L.A. session yeah. musicians. And for, for so many of us, unknown faces, unknown players, until they started playing the riffs and pointing out the tunes that they played on. And such a great doc. Okay, any others? You know what? My list goes on and on. Here's another two that you should definitely see if you're more, if you want to go, go grunge looking forward. You got to check out Pearl Jam 20, which is from the first gig right through 20 years of Pearl Jam. Oh. And it's so much inside stuff from the band. And the Foo Fighters doc as well, which is a 20 year retrospective that is definitely Dave Grohl's baby. He's warts and all with this one. Talks about, you know, uh, not joining Tom Petty's band and how we put down the phone and was like, oh, I just did that. <laughs> talks about, you know, about Kurt Cobain dying. Talks about making that first record, uh, the first Foo fighters record and it really just being on a cassette it's just so well done i can't oh, recommend wow. it enough what'd you think about 20 feet from stardom oh great did movie. you see that one i yes. did i did i enjoyed it i enjoyed it i, I the, love it but i enjoyed it the darlene love moment where she talks about being brought in in the middle of the night to do that harrowing vocal part in gimme shelter is worth the price of admission and speaking I, of stones how about hail hail rock and roll the uh, chuck berry uh documentary yeah. that, that was made essentially by keith richards yeah we're we're uh 
Chuck Berry swung a guitar at his head. <laughs> well, there was that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny, though? And I know we're, we're getting tight for time, but we could literally do an entire pod on Stones documentaries. Oh, wow. Because there's, there's just so many, mm-hmm. from Scorsese's to you know the untold story of the Rolling Stones, which is another, by the way, subgenre of music documentaries, is The Cheapy Maids, where someone holds rights to an artist's old music. One you should look up is the Van Halen, Van Halen, The Untold Story, where it really gets down into this sort of L.A. party scene. And I learned what I didn't know about this band was that David Lee Roth was 100% directly influenced and completely ripped off all of the moves of the lead singer from Black Oak, Arkansas. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He would videotape him. Jim, I, Jim Dandy, I think, was his name. I did not know that. And they show footage of this guy, and you're like, that's David Lee Roth. And it's like, no, no, that's the guy David Lee Roth stole from. Wow. Yeah. The mm. Van Halen, The Untold Story. Okay, so Excellent. favorite all time, yours is the Eagles, Jay? Yeah, got to be the Eagles. Tom, yours? Uh, the Eagles as well. Really? Yes. Okay, I'm showing my age. Don't look back. Bob Dylan. D.A. Pennebecker. No Direction Home, the uh, yeah. the Scorsese film about Bob Dylan is excellent as well. And the one that he did for George Harrison, Living in the Material World. Excellent. Okay, let's talk very briefly about that one. Because to me, that was a very beautiful piece about George Harrison. But when it came right to the very end, when they're talking to George about what he's going to miss when he's gone. Wow. Now remember, oh boy. Do, you, do you know this moment that I'm talking no, about? No, I don't. Okay. So... Olivia Harrison has lovingly been part of this entire documentary, has spoken about George, including his flaws, but this is clearly a loving tribute from her to him. And the very last clip is, what will you miss when you're gone? He says, oh, just my son. And it stands out like you're going, oh my God, he didn't say Olivia. Like he didn't mention this woman who's been pouring her heart out now. She was executive producer of this documentary, I believe, and so she had a lot of say as to what stayed in and what went, and she kept that in. And it's heartbreaking at the end, but wow. it's so it's such a beautiful uh, documentary. It's excellent. That's how, obviously how selfless she was. She wanted yes. Dan- Danny Harrison to see that from, from his dad. Yeah. That's beautiful. Amazing. There you go. So, Jay, want to have you back one of these days to talk about the greatest books about rock and roll ever done. I have eight beside my bed right now that I'm trying to get to. <laughs> yes, and I probably have 25 that I've read, and I've got another 10 to go. Can't wait. All right, excellent. Please come back anytime. I'd love to. Thanks, guys. All right, Jay. Jay Michaels, our special guest on Famous Lost Words. That does it for this week. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, executive producer, Rob Farina. 